Aaron was just mentioning about old-timey preachers having to preach to thousands just with their voice, and she said it was exhausting for them. I can guarantee it. I'm preaching to a small crowd. I'm usually amplified. I will go home in the afternoon and say, I've got to go lay down. And yet these old-timey preachers would be getting up and giving a second or a third or a fourth uh, sermon or traveling on horseback 20 miles to give another sermon to thousands of people with their voice application alone. I've told the story before about Charles Spurgeon was testing when he opened up his uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He was testing the acoustics. It It was a masterpiece of acoustics. But he was testing it, and he was giving, we'd call it a mic test. But uh, uh, he stood at the pulpit, and he boomed out because apparently he had quite... We actually know a lot of what, what he sounds like. Even though he died before amplification, his son was a renowned preacher. And they, people who heard them both said his son sounded remarkably like uh, Charles Spurgeon. So you can actually here an approximation, but anyway, Charles Spurgeon is doing a, basically a sound test to find out how, because he, Metropolitan Tabernacle sat 6,000 people, and he uh, quoted John the Baptist saying, uh, behold comes the, um, comes the Son of God, or something along that line, and a workman in the rafters was converted by the sound of his voice and from the sound check alone and became a Christian. So uh, what can I say? Then again, I've told you also that Jonathan Edwards would just read his sermon with his head down so that he wouldn't influence unduly through passion, belief in God. So we've got that. So we will see how that goes. So I will speak loud, go home thoroughly exhausted. You know, I, like most people, can at times be stubborn. You know, big surprise, huh? That we're all stubborn at one time or another. I mean, truly, an identifying characteristic of a human being is stubbornness. Uh, We think we're right. We always think we're right. Uh, However we've been raised is the right way to be raised, right? Whatever church we've gone to, in our youth, um, most people stay with it, and almost everybody in here that I know of has changed. <laughs> there were no Reformed Baptists uh, when we were growing up, so everybody here has changed. But I've told you these stories before. My earliest memory in my life is being in church, okay? That's the first thing I remember, and I remember it because Roy Rogers and Dale Evans were there. And I knew who they were. You know, maybe I didn't know who God was, but I knew who Roy... I was about four, but I knew who Roy Rogers and Dale Evans were. I've, and I've mentioned this before, but there's a point to it. My great-great-grandmother started the church that that happened in. She started a Sunday school, the first Protestant Sunday school in the San Fernando Valley in 1877, which became the first Protestant church in the San Fernando Valley later on in the same, and the building that I worshipped in was built in 1903. Now, mind you, that sounds like a long time ago, but from when I was born, that was just 50 years before. I know that this church has been here uh, 30 plus years already, and when I think that my pioneer great-great-grandmother 
you know, started this church, and it was an old church. It's an oddity for California. It looks like an old Connecticut-style church. White, shingled, steepled, very beautiful, but very out of place in California. In that church, and I've mentioned this before also, my grandmother was the pianist and organist from 1922 to 1977. When my grandmother retired, my sister took over. My great-uncle ran the junior church and the Sunday school department uh, from roughly 1920 to 1980. Yeah, that's a long run. So when um, probably... I give this background to tell you that I thought I was well-churched from an early age. However, I was not well-taught. Probably everything I knew about the Bible, Jesus and God, uh, came not from the pulpit, from the junior church that my Uncle Harold taught, and from the old-fashioned whatever hymns that my grandmother played for us kids in Sunday school and junior church. So when Aaron and I married and started looking for a church to attend, we started going to a church that practiced believers' baptism. Okay? Now, you say, what's wrong with that? Okay? I would say, what's wrong with that myself? Well, I grew up in a Methodist church. And uh, for all of you, that is back then Methodist Episcopal. And it was named that way because the Methodist Church came out of the Episcopal Church. And what are the Episcopals known for? Infant baptism. So I was sprinkled as a baby. And as we attended this church, which put a a very strong emphasis on, on believers' baptism to the point that their churches... We'd call it a Presbyterian, Presbyterian church. Their hierarchy would put out a newsletter and print the baptisms for each church in their group every month. You know, and here I'm sitting in church and I'm this outline statistic, you know. I'm the only one in the church who hadn't had believer's baptism. So it sounded like very many, many um, sermons were pointed my way. Or calls to... Uh, uh, altar calls. There was only one person who needed an altar call in the church. So anyway, I rebelled, and I rebelled mildly, you know? But, but you know, my family had started the church I grew up in. And trust me, they were genuine Christians. And of that there was no doubt. If infant baptism and sprinkling was good enough for them, I thought... It's good enough for me. Now, so here's the thing, and the point of the story is that it's not about believers' baptism over pedo-baptism. That's not where I'm going. The point is stubbornness. Stubbornness, okay? Stubbornness about tradition. Stubbornness about family. But more than that, stubbornness without knowledge. I tell you, I was untaught as a Christian. How can you be a Christian if you're untaught? We know that you can be. I'm not going there either. You see, upon further investigation, not into Christianity, but into my family history, 
the argument that it was good enough for my family, my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, grandmother, great-uncle, father, mother, um, didn't hold up. My great-great-grandmother who started the church was a Baptist, okay? Taken as a child to Utah, but she said she was always a Baptist and never a Mormon. She never joined the, the church, okay? Uh, my, my grandmother who played who played organ all those 55 years, even after she started losing her mind and had to ask if it was Sunday so that she could go and play the organ. She was a Presbyterian. Her father was a Presbyterian pastor. She never joined the church, okay? My great uncle, who I attribute much to, he was a Presbyterian. He never joined the church. My mother was a Baptist. She was never sprinkled. My point here is that that everything that I was holding on to, my, my resistance, was based on tradition and ignorance. So as we finish up Stephen's defense today, he's going to point out that the entire basis of the Jewish proudness, the Jewish stubbornness about the patriarchs about the fathers of the Jewish religion is based not on their inherent fidelity to God but on an ignorance a misreading of their history we've previously seen that rather than blaspheming Moses Stephen showed that it is Israel herself who rejected him from last week Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. See, I'm working that line into every single sermon like for the last month. I love that line. Stephen shows them that the Hebrew nation also rejected God himself at this very first opportunity in the wilderness. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. And as to the charge that Stephen blasphemed the temple, he points out that instead they revere it too much. It is not where God lives at all. Chapter 7, verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things. That brings us up to today's passage, Acts 7, and we're going 51 through 55. 
There was a self-help book put out in the 1930s by Dale Carnegie. It was called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it was about 1900 years too late for Stephen. He never read it. He has not made any friends. The follow-up book to that, which you may not know, is How to Be Happy and Just Live. Okay? Stephen didn't read that book either. This is, this is not going good because he immediately, verse 51a says, you stiff-necked people. Okay, where did that come from? We're having a discourse, a, a nice calm discourse pointing out the history of the patriarchs and, and how Stephen wasn't insulting them. And here... We just jumped right from the last thing I read to, you stiff-necked people. Well, there was apparently an outburst. They realized in this debate that Stephen, well, first of all, Stephen was winning. But second of all, it was nearing the debate. And when he got to the point where he pointed out that the temple was revered too much by the Jews, there was an outburst, apparently. The crowds were getting rowdy. And this is his reply to the rowdy crowds. He says, you stiff-necked people. Calling the Jews a stiff-necked people was not new with Stephen. I mean, that's not something he came up with. After the people had made and worshipped the golden calf, God said to them, and this is in Exodus, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Further on, he says, When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. The Lord calls Israel a stiff-necked people all through here. I've got longer quotes that I'm not going to do. In Deuteronomy, God's language for the same area, for the same same basic talk about the golden calf and things, changes, uh, changes to calling them stubborn. And that's how I've always seen the Israelites as stiff-necked, stubborn. But, but a commentator gave me a new way to look at them. What is it to be stiff-necked? Have you ever had a stiff neck? Have you woken up with a crick in your neck in the morning? Okay? doesn't happen that often to me but I've gotten into my car and want to back up and I can hardly lift my my face to look in the rearview mirror and I certainly can't turn my head to clear my blind spot I can't back the car out of the driveway because of his stiff neck and this commentator said that the this is what God meant by calling them stiff neck it wasn't just stubborn it was they could not turn their heads to see another way. They could not look behind them. They could not see God's word because they could not turn their head because of their stiff necks. Keep that one in mind when you hear about that. They had a huge blind spot that seemingly they could do nothing about. They simply could not see things another way not in Moses' time and not now in Stephen's more than that Stephen accuses them of being uncircumcised in heart 
and ears. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with the Hebrew people. To be uncircumcised is to be outside the covenant. You are not a Jew if you are uncircumcised. If you want to become a Jew, you have to be circumcised, which is why there were so many male proselytes and not that many male converts, okay? And that's actually historically true, was they wanted to draw draw close to God, but not that close. Stephen says both their hearts, meaning their very souls, and their ears, their ability to understand God's word, are outside God's covenant. The Jews have no hope of being in God's will, no way to turn and see God's way, and no way to understand God's words. Stephen continues in verse 51b. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Is there an example of God saying jump and the Jews saying how high? Anywhere in scripture, when God asks them to do something, is it ever done without a dragging of feet? Jewish history is one of resisting God. The word Israel comes from the patriarch Jacob fighting the angel of the Lord all night. Israel literally means wrestles with God. Instead of obedience, the Jews have forever disobeyed wrestled and fought with God. Stephen says, just as your fathers did, so you do today. 52a says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now, this is a good question. I'm not even sure there is one that was not persecuted in one way or another. Notice also here that Stephen asks, which of the prophets your fathers did not persecute. All the way through this, you'll remember, he was ingratiating himself, saying, our fathers, our fathers, leading them through the history about our fathers. He gets to this point and he says, which did your fathers not persecute? At this point, Stephen indicates that he and the Christian church have split with Israel. It's their fathers. It is no longer Stephen's fathers because Stephen, Stephen's spiritual fathers and Stephen himself have not rejected the prophets. Stephen believes both the prophets and their prophecies. Verse 52b continues. Which of the prophets, and I'm going to repeat myself because it's a thought, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before the coming of the righteous one. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Now the accusation is out there that the Jews murdered the prophets. Scripture doesn't tell of any deaths deaths of the prophets. I looked this up carefully. One, one Old Testament prophet, it's told how he dies, and I will continue on with that one in a moment. 
But other than that, all through Scripture, it is said in the Old Testament, said, you who murder the prophets, you who murder the prophets. The Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, and the Jewish Talmud from Jerusalem both talk and name prophets who were murdered by the Jews, okay? But the, the Old Testament is silent on who was killed. But even though they're not named, Matthew 23, 37 has Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. If Jesus says it, you know, what did we say? It's gospel truth, right? I take that at face value. The prophets were killed. In fact, in in the Old Testament, you will see that so-and-so took the sword to the prophets. All I'm saying is that they weren't named, the ones that were killed. Jesus says that Jerusalem kills her prophets. Here, however, Stephen does not say the Jews killed all the prophets, but those prophets who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Okay, well, the first prophet and the only one, uh, well, one of my sources said that he was named in the Bible, but a prophet. If an Old Testament prophet comes to mind that announced the coming of the righteous one of the Messiah you'd probably think of this uh, for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be called uh, upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace oh that's from Isaiah 9 6 through 7 the virgin shall conceive and bear a son call his name Emmanuel hmm. That's Isaiah 7.14. Moving on along. uh, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. Isaiah 42.1. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. I will not go on. Isaiah. Isaiah was one of those one of those prophets that were killed by the Jews. That's one that is spelled out in the uh, Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. He was killed by Manasseh, his grandson, as a matter of fact. Cut in half, sawn in half. The second Old Testament prophet who was killed is named, and he's probably the second most famous that proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. And you probably don't think of him as an Old Testament prophet. And we find him in the New Testament. Matthew 3 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is, uh, kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah who said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Both of those were killed by the Jewish people. And both of them were proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And here we have the final words of Stephen's defense in verses 52b through 53. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There is a colloquialism that I won't believe that unless, and maybe it started with uh, the uh, Apostle Thomas that we call Doubting Thomas. I won't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead unless I place my fingers in his palm and my hand in his side. Um, We today might say, I won't believe that unless God comes down and writes it in stone. And Stephen says here that God did come down and write his law in stone and delivered it to the Jews by angels. And I don't know if they mean by angels or by angels means messengers or the messenger Moses. And they still do not believe it because if they believed it, they would have kept the law. You know, we, we live in a time where people really want to see these kind of things. They want to see, and they say that they will believe it if they see it. And I'm here to tell you, they will not believe because they've seen. It doesn't matter what has happened. The Israelites walked through a water that Moses divided and crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And within a week, they were making a golden calf. Verse 54 finishes what we're looking at today. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And as Lauren often says of me, how mature, you know, ah, their teeth. Next week we'll see that they stopped their ears and charged him so that they wouldn't, nah, 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 you, you know. You know, no matter how proud I am of my family's Christian heritage, I have nothing on the Jews of Stephen's day. They were fanatical about their heritage, revering Moses, the patriarchs in the temple, to the point of murder. Okay? Perhaps they were that way because of their um, humiliating circumstances in circa AD 33 under the thumb of the Roman Empire for the previous 80 years or so. Perhaps that exacerbated the reverence of their history that they held. But the tendency had been with them from ancient times. They always played up their status as God's chosen people, even as they were enslaved multiple times, defeated in battle, exiled, shown to be unfaithful to God, idol worshippers, practicers of child sacrifice, murderers. And we can go through the Old Testament. It goes on and on and on and on. It's as though God is showing the world today that anyone who's called, no matter their race, status in life, criminal record, can be a part of God's family. It's not the family you're born into that matters. It's who adopts you that does. In my youthful foolish, maybe called but not yet Christian days, I put faith in my Christian heritage. But just like the Hebrews' Jewish heritage, It meant nothing. There are truly no second generation Christians. I say that as someone who can show my Christians uh, 
Christians in my family back a thousand years to the Valdensians and the Vaudois. And they were Baptists, I just want you to know. They weren't sprinkling their children back then. But, but just like the Hebrews' uh, Jewish uh, heritage, it means nothing. Every generation for a millennium in the family that I know about needed the renewal, regeneration, and the salvation given by the Holy Spirit. My children are not going to get it from me. I will do as the Lord says and bring them to church and teach them the way to walk. But it is their choice. and has been their choice when they grew up. It's very possible that in the, uh, in the time that I'm talking about, generations did not become Christian. I don't know. I just know, you know, vague family history. I don't know how everyone went. But that's also the glory of Christianity. While it does not pass down as a right through families, neither does apostasy. Every new generation can bring a renewal of a new spirit, God's gift of a new heart. The Jews of Stephen's day claimed their righteousness from being the sons of Abraham from their lineage alone, the covenant God made with their father Abraham. I pointed out to you that the Sanhedrin really did not believe in the Jewish religion. That wasn't what they were in it for. They were in it for the money from the temple. Yet, they would say, well, you know, our father is Abraham. We're in the covenant. We're saved. In Matthew 3, 9... John the Baptist, that prophet the Jews killed, had this to say about being the children of Abraham. Verse 9 says, and listen how closely God answers these kind of questions. And do not presume to say to yourselves, and this is John the Baptist, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We know this to be true. Because every generation for 4,000 years now, the Holy Spirit has made children for God out of people with hearts of stone that he has turned to hearts of flesh every generation for 4,000 years. That has gone on. And yes, some fall away. And it's a shame when they do. But we raise our children in the knowledge of the Lord so that that may not happen. Raise up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Let's close in prayer.